This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers to investing from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. Uh, for people watching on YouTube, they'll see a slightly different setup. We're snuggled up very close today. Yes, we are. Yeah, um, but looking forward to this interview. Uh, this is... Are we, we're speaking to someone who's... Uh, Got a very interesting, I guess, experience in markets and a, a thesis, I guess, for um, what may play out over the coming years that we're going to unpack in this episode. It is our pleasure to welcome uh, David Halpert to Equity Mates. David, welcome. Thank you, gentlemen. For those who haven't come across David before, he has been uh, active in capital markets for 30 years and founded Prince Street Capital in 2001 and is now the Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager of the firm. And uh, as Ren discussed, there's plenty to unpack um, with David. But before we do, we always like to start with a couple of questions about, uh, about your background, David. So we'll pass over to Ren and get cracking. Uh, yeah, we like to hear the story of your first investment uh, to kick us off today. We find there's generally a good story or a good lesson that comes out of it. So uh, to kick us off today, can you tell us the story of your first investment? Yes, uh, my first investment was shares in IBM, which way back in the Bronze Age was the big leading technology company in the United States. Uh, my second investment was Hong Kong Telecom, which at that point was listed in the New York Stock Exchange. And I would say my whole career has pretty much combined those two ever since, because it's been international investing and now technology investing, uh, and they both worked out pretty well. Nice. So, David, do you have a personal investing philosophy? Yeah, I'm a big believer in uh, technology as a catalyst for uh, financial and digital inclusion and indeed for empowerment of, uh, people all around the world. And with that in mind, I've come up with this thematic of digital decolonization, talking with some businessmen here in Asia, but I really do believe this. I think the world is a better and more interesting and more prosperous place. If business people, engineers and consumers in countries around the world start to invest in and develop their own digital ecosystems. Mm. Now, David, we'll get to this concept of digital decolonization in a second. But if we take a step back, you founded Prince Street Capital in 2001 uh, with a focus on emerging and frontier markets. Let's start with some definitions just for people who are you know, unfamiliar with those terms and maybe some of those markets. Can you define how you see an emerging and a frontier market and maybe what's the difference between the two? It's 
really in the eye of the beholder. So MSCI has one way of evaluating it. Uh, the FTSE indexes have another way of evaluating it. I have friends who will passionately argue that Pakistan should be frontier, or someone else might say Pakistan should be emerging and so forth. But the, the two combined essentially make up what we used to call the third world or the developing world. And it's a very broad universe, including at the wealthy end, China, Korea, and Taiwan, which are increasingly wealthier than developed countries that we've known about for decades. And then very poor, very early stage countries, including Egypt, Nigeria, Bangladesh, and so forth. So I, I blur the two. I think it's all kind of one risk, which is the risk beyond the U.S., Europe, Australia, Japan, uh, OECD ecosystem. But there's room to argue on the margins which countries in and which countries out. Hmm. So why, why focus on emerging and frontier markets? And I guess the next question to follow that is how is the opportunity set different to perhaps more developed markets? So, I mean, broadly speaking, what we used to say is that emerging markets are less efficient than developed markets. And there's still some truth to that. I mean, the, the number of analysts who cover a stock in the U.S. or Australia or the U.K. is and the sophistication of the analysts who cover the stocks um, is pretty different from what you would find in the research community covering stocks in Indonesia or stocks in the Philippines or, you know, stocks in South America somewhere. Uh, but that distinction also is kind of con constructed because, for example, Brazil is a very sophisticated capital market with a very deep research community. And then at the other end, Portugal, which is no longer classified as emerging market and is officially you know, developed, is much less sophisticated. So the whole subject, it is starting to get blurry. And of course, the main elephant in the room when you come to classifications now is China, because China is the world's second largest economy, world's second largest financial system, and uh, is increasingly wealthier than some, quote, developed countries. Uh, and a company like Alibaba, I mean, to argue that this is an emerging markets company uh, and Afterpay is a developed markets company, well, Alibaba is much, much bigger and much, much more powerful. Uh, so all these labels are getting a little weird as I get older. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, I still think there's a basic idea that investors have trouble evaluating the risk of Alibaba getting sanctioned by the Chinese government or the prime minister of Pakistan, you know, making some mistake or whatever. And these, this country risk factor that, uh, still hangs over emerging markets broadly is really the risk that I am trying to trade around and uh, analyze. Mm. So uh, the Prince Street team have traveled to over 100 countries in the past 10 years. So what you've covered about half the world's countries, that's, that's pretty impressive. What are some of the things you've learned through all this travel? You know, in what ways are these markets similar? In what ways are they different? Are there any misconceptions that Western investors have about these uh, countries? So I think there's some enormous misconceptions that all investors have about the world that I study. And uh, in particular, the most important lesson that I've 
drawn from 100 in-country research visits is how similar people really are and even how similar economies and, and countries are and, and companies. So it's true that you know, the legal system in Australia works much better than the legal system in Indonesia. And it's true that the regulators in Australia are much more transparent and straightforward than the regulators in the Philippines. But beyond that, it's kind of all the same, you know, and there still are uh, people work. Some people don't work as hard as other people. People save. Some people don't save as much as other people. People invest and they invest in different ways. And what you're seeing over time is that it's all kind of leveling out. Uh, And the digital decolonization thematic, uh, which is my big thing right now, really is to say that it's possible for a company in uh, Indonesia or a company in India or the company in the Philippines to develop a pretty good tech platform, just as it's possible in Australia and possible in China, Mm. that they're not that different. And there are some unique things, of course. I mean, the, the U.S. has the world's largest economy, the world's largest financial system. It has a more complicated technology landscape, and there are companies doing specific things that I won't expect to see in Indonesia for the next five or 10 years. But there's an awful lot which is just the same. Mm. So we ca- we first came across this uh, digital decolonization term uh, when you pitched at the Hearts and Minds conference. Um, for those unfamiliar, uh, HM1 is a listed uh, investment company in Australia uh, where some of the best investors in the world pitch their best ideas. Um, and rather than taking a management fee, the uh, the fee is donated to medical research. We're big fans. Um, and yeah, so we first heard about digital decolonization through HM1, and we've wanted to get you on the show to hear about it from you ever since. So you mentioned a little bit about it there, but take us back to the very beginning, I guess. Imagine we know nothing about digital decolonization and what you mean by it. How would you explain it to, to a layperson? There are 10 companies in the world which make up the overwhelming majority of market cap. Alibaba, Tencent, Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, Facebook, etc. Most of the world's economy, most of the world's population, most of the world's mobile phones, most of the world's email accounts, most of the world's online business volume is not as concentrated. So there's a huge gap between where the capital is currently concentrated and where the real business is being done. And I don't think that's sustainable. So I think it can happen. It can resolve itself in a number of ways. New companies can start up and compete with these incumbent superpower companies, or the superpower companies can crash and burn, or something else can happen. There can be a dramatic worsening of business conditions in countries like Indonesia and India. But my base case is that the way it's going to resolve is that you will see new technology champions rising uh, out of India and Indonesia first, and then subsequently other countries uh, with large populations and good tech sectors and people who save money and write code and do all those nice things. So David, part of the way that big technology companies have, I guess, been so successful and able to colonize the world has been through uh, their network effects, um, you know, connecting the world on, on one platform. 
how are local companies and the companies that you're speaking about here, you know, how do you think they're going to be able to break through these global network effects? Well, one of the things that we look at before we make an investment in a tech company in the developing world is whether they have already achieved significant scale in terms of users or whether they seem to be on track to achieving that. So I had a call this morning with a gentleman who's got 10 million customers, digital bank, you know, 10 million isn't that much, but his competitor has about 40 million customers. And it's questionable whether the 10 million guy is going to actually scale up and survive, but it's pretty clear that a 40 million customer business is going to be pretty resilient. And most of what I call my Digitech champions are companies that can arguably reach you know, even 100 million users over the next couple of years. And this isn't e-commerce and fintech. This can be power tech, health tech, edu tech, even ag tech, although that'll probably look a little different over time. So, David, we're going to um, get stuck into two specific case studies to really, I guess, unpack this idea of digital decolonization. We're going to talk about Indonesia and then we're going to talk about India But before we do, I want to ask about the, I guess, the extent of this trend. You know, if we talk about the big tech companies like Amazon, Microsoft, Google colonizing the world, they haven't just colonized emerging markets and frontier markets. They've colonized the UK, Germany, Australia, New Zealand as well. How far do you... Really? I hadn't noticed that. I thought you guys had your own... e-commerce companies and you know search engines. <laughs> Bryce is trying to start his own search engine, but his coding isn't quite good enough. <laughs> how do you? How far do you expect this digital decolonization trend to play out? Do you expect it to hit OECD countries as well? So I'm not sure how this is going to play out, and it will very much depend on decisions that governments will take, and decisions that companies will take, and decisions that customers will take. But the language, I think, is a, is a big factor here. India will be the first English-speaking country with a serious indigenous technology sector that competes with the U.S. U.K., not much. Australia, with all due respect, not much. God help New Zealand. You know, <laughs> like, it, it, South Africa has one huge company, which is, uh, you know, done extremely well. But... Generally speaking, uh, the English language tends to allied over easily into what Silicon Valley has built. Now, let's imagine we're not in English. Imagine that you speak Vietnamese, which is you know a very different language. Well, you may not find you know the Amazon website in English particularly accessible, and Amazon.com.vn will eventually probably get launched. But that probably gives my friends in Ho Chi Minh City three, four, five years to set something up that may not be as good as Amazon, but maybe it will be better. And what we've definitely seen in Latin America, specifically with Mercado Libre, which is a stock that I think some of your listeners may have looked at, is Mercado Libre competed face-to-face, toe-to-toe with Amazon, and they won. Why did they win? Mercado Libre really focused on what local people in Latin America wanted. They wanted service in Spanish. They wanted to pay if they didn't have credit cards. They wanted websites which offered them the products that they wanted. 
And still, if you're going to buy an Apple Watch, you'll probably get it cheaper on Amazon than on Mercado Libre. It'll just take three weeks to get to you. And if you don't have a US dollar credit card, you may not be able to pay for it. But still, they will have better sourcing of that. But if you want to buy horse medicine, <laughs> which one of my friends does source from Mercado Libre for his horse farm in Brazil, you know, you probably much prefer to, to buy it from the local vendor. And we see this very clearly in Indonesia. So I, I stayed in Indonesia for four months, five months last year. My wife is Indonesian. I saw what was going down in the countryside where we were staying. Amazon doesn't exist for those people. It's expensive, it's impossible to pay for, and delivery takes three weeks. So the only thing that we would buy on Amazon when we were there was books. Uh, because, you know, the Indonesian website's not going to carry the number of titles that Amazon will carry. But clothes, food, medicine, household equipment. I bought a wood chipper. You know, <laughs> I don't want that delivered from Seattle. I want that up the road, you know. And so the, there's a huge value in localization. The second point, and I think this is uh, very worthwhile considering in the, in the Mercado Libre story. These American tech companies can't be everywhere at, at the same time in the same level of quality. So Amazon knows Vietnam is a big country. They know that this is going to be a wealthy country, and they believe that it's worth getting that market. But they just don't have the manpower to do that right now. They're going to fight like hell for India. They're going to defend Japan and Australia. And then maybe three years, four years from now, they'll finally get around to rolling out Vietnam. So they're going to lose. Mm. So David, before we jump into a case study on Indonesia, we'll just take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, David, there's no doubt that we have heard uh, a lot about the, the opportunities in, in Indonesia. We recently spoke to a fund manager who is specializing in Asian uh, investments, and you've obviously just spoken a lot about it there. So let's dig into it a little bit further. Are you able to elaborate a bit on the emerging digital ecosystem that you witnessed over in Indonesia and is starting to really play out? And us, are we starting to see some of the companies there um, well, yeah, fight back, I guess? Well, with all due respect, sir, I'm able to elaborate on the digital ecosystem in Indonesia far beyond any amount of time anyone would like to listen. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, in 40 characters or less. <laughs> it, it is a keystroke. Okay. Okay. 
this is a major opportunity. It's a major opportunity for Indonesians. It's a major opportunity for people in Singapore, where I live, and it is a major opportunity for Australians. Indonesia is a superpower. It doesn't yet feel like a superpower, but it's so big that it's just going to become a superpower. And at, it's a trillion-dollar economy, same size as Australia. Probably this is the year where there will be more automobiles on the road in Indonesia than there are in Australia. And best of all, for you guys, there's an active, signed, ratified free trade agreement between the two countries. So this is an economy that will grow faster than the U.S., U.K., Australia for the next five years, the next 10 years, probably the next 20 years. It's a country where it's still early days for basic things like architecture. Most houses in Indonesia are built without an architect. Early days for healthcare. It's early days for financial services. It's early days for educational services. And these innovations, these modernizations are still ahead of them. So it's a great opportunity for Australians in particular. But in terms of how the ecosystem is developing, we now have four, what they call the unicorns, uh, four soon-to-be-listed billion-dollar companies coming out of Jakarta. And at least one of those, I think, is going to be listed no north of $10 billion in market cap. It is the economy which has received the largest volume of venture capital investment outside of China in Asia. So they've got maybe five, six billion invested over the last couple of years, which is more than I think the rest of Southeast Asia combined. And it is uh, a place that welcomes foreign investment. They're relatively nice to foreigners, as you know from your vacations in Bali. And it's a place where you can actually make money. And I find when I talk to my friends in the investment world, they're all focused on China. But China is so competitive. There's so many companies fighting for everything, whether my friends at Ping An Good Doctor, who I talked about uh, at Son, well, they've got now two or three multi-billion dollar competitors competing with them. And then India is also competitive. It's a little less overcapitalized than China, but it's a very complicated place with a, a real ambivalence about foreign investment. So Indonesia is a system where foreign investors have been welcomed steadily for my entire career, you know, 23 years. The currency is pretty volatile. There are some nuances to investing there. But I, I, I would encourage Australian investors, the equity mates podcast listener or viewer um, to seriously look at this place. And, you know, it's not easy to make money there any more than it's easy to make money in Australia or the United States, but it significantly diversifies your risk away from the Federal Reserve. Uh, and it's so early days for the economy that there's a lot of kind of blue sky there. So David, uh, you mentioned there are four unicorns that may be listing soon. Um, let's test my Indonesian knowledge here. Is the uh, one that's maybe listing above 10 billion, is that Gojek? So yes, Gojek uh, has just raised money at a 10 billion valuation. So can you maybe to give the equity mates listeners a bit of a taste of some of the companies that are operating in Indonesia, can you tell us a little bit about these four unicorns, Gojek, I'm going to guess Tokopedia and then the other two as well. So 
I mean, the, when Indonesians talk about unicorns, they usually mention Gojek, Tokopedia, Traveloka, and Bukalapak. But in reality now, there's several others which are approaching that status. Ranguru, which is the education company. Uh, Bank Jago, which is already listed and is a, now, a, I think, a $10 billion company. MTech, which is another listed company that people can look up, which is a holding company that owns a lot of Bukalapak uh, and some other interesting assets. But HelloDoc is a little below a billion now, but I think that'll be a, a unicorn pretty soon. And then we still haven't really touched the ag tech businesses, many of which are growing very quickly and looking pretty interesting. So between fintech, ride sharing, e-commerce, health tech, online travel, we have uh, potentially seven or eight listings that will be over a billion dollars. Mm. So, uh, David, we had a chat before this interview and you mentioned the uh, Australia-Indonesia free trade agreement and um, you touched on it earlier in this conversation. But when we spoke uh, before this interview, you were explaining the significance of the free trade agreement. And I think largely because of COVID, it's gone under the radar here in Australia, hasn't been a lot of reporting on it. So maybe for people that missed it, can you uh, tell us why it's important for us as investors and as Australians to, to understand disagreement? So the Indonesia-Australia Comprehensive Economic Partnership, IACEP, was signed in February 2020. And it was late in February. So I think they were already wearing masks and like had the sanitizer on the table when they, when they did this deal. And unfortunately, COVID was just so loud that it, it didn't get any press. Uh, but you can look it up on the government websites and you can read the document. And it's a very interesting document. And it says, among other things, that Australia agrees to give e local treatment to electric cars that are made in Indonesia. And with all due respect, you know, the Holden was a great car and all that. You, guys, <laughs> you, know, you basically import your cars now, yeah. right? Mm. Well, you may find that you are importing Indonesian cars in the not too distant future. Uh, and that's super exciting for the Indonesian companies because it doubles their addressable market because you both have about 18 million cars on the road. Then, reciprocally, a number of service businesses that Indonesia had been protecting are now granting equal treatment to Australians. Now, I don't know when COVID's over, if you fly up to Bali and open an architect's office, it is possible that the Ministry of construction will stop by and say your plans are not valid. You know, I, I'm not going to promise you that this is going to be completely enforced next week. But uh, I imagine with the help of a lawyer, you will be able to argue that an Australian architect should be treated as uh, local. Sadly, and to my frustration, I wasn't able to find language addressing doctors and healthcare is a key comparative advantage for, of Australia's, particularly approaching the Southeast Asian system. So it would be nice if we could get more Australian doctors to fly up to Bali and open clinics. Uh, that may take another few years. So you mentioned there the 
electric vehicles and uh, the relationship that, that we will have with uh, Indonesia on that front. And uh, Indonesia have made it pretty clear about their ambitions to be heavily involved in, in that sector. What are some of the important companies in this transition to uh, electric vehicles that we should be aware of or thinking about? As it happens, listed on the Australian Stock Exchange, there is a company called Nickel Mines, which is run by a very enterprising Australian gentleman who's a good deal taller than anyone else in Indonesia. Um, <laughs> and he married a beautiful Indonesian film star, and now he's the CEO of an Aussie listed company called Nickel Mines. And they are the world's leading player in the refining of nickel. So they're not just miners, they're really industrial refiners. And they have two or three project sites in Eastern Indonesia where they are doing refining with a goal to eventually make batteries in country. So that's an immediate kind of direct play on the electric battery story. Indonesia is the world's largest producer of nickel and it will soon be the world's largest refiner of nickel. And there's some technology risk and there's you know always management risk and all this, but I think it's a pretty good story. Next, there is an Indonesian mining company called the Neka Tambang, which holds 30% of a company called PT Indonesia Battery. I don't have that in my book right now, but that's because I got nickel mines and nickel mines, I think is a little bit easier to analyze as a foreigner, but an ekatom is super interesting uh, and is growing very quickly and is a big player in copper. And it's also one of the two largest distributors of gold in Indonesia. So those are two ways to play that. Then you have the big car companies, Astra International and Indomobile. I prefer Astra. And then you have a number of companies that we don't really see yet, which are going to do things like charging stations. So there's going to be a lot of opportunity associated with this. Just imagine, you know, I, I don't know if you guys are aware, but uh, the UK has said that after a certain cutoff date, they're not even going to allow the sale of gasoline cars. Well, Indonesia is starting to slowly edge toward the same conclusion. And I imagine Australia will soon edge toward that same conclusion. That's going to require the entire auto fleet in both countries to be resold. And that is, I think, $100 billion of business. Most of that's going to go to Toyota, and Honda, and Suzuki, but uh, a lot of the components for that. And the distribution of that and the charging of that is going to go on with local companies. Yeah, wow, it's it's a fascinating story. So, um, to summarize the uh, Indonesian story, um, Australia Indonesia free trade agreement creates a lot of opportunity for both countries. Um, for Indonesia, especially around the electric vehicle industry. For Australians, uh, we should be looking to export our services to Indonesia more. So if you're an architect, start drawing up plans to open that uh, Jakarta office. Um, if you're a super fund manager, you should be looking at the Indonesian pension law. Interesting. Which is still coming together, but it's worth hiring somebody who speaks Bahasa and having them sit in your office just following the pension system. That's a huge pension system and it's going to grow. Mm. And then uh, there are a number of Indonesian unicorns in a whole bunch of different areas that are interesting. So, yeah, fascinating country. So Gojek and Tokopedia will merge probably this year, and they're planning, I, I don't know, a local IPO or a US IPO or a Singapore IPO or something. But that's going to be 
if Grab holds up at 40 billion, that's going to be not much short of that. And that's going to be an actionable stock for everybody. Then there are these smaller companies that are already listed, which are very interesting and are worth analyzing. So, David, uh, we've touched on Indonesia. Now let's uh, turn to another country that is of a lot of interest to the Equitymates community at the moment, which is India. Um, Obviously, India is going through a tough moment at the moment with the current COVID health emergency. But if we talk longer term about India, there's a um, there's a really interesting, I guess, business story playing out there. So, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the emerging digital economy in India and some of the main players over there? If there is one country that Silicon Valley is really desperate to get access to, it is India. And you saw that when Reliance Geo did a placement last year and was able to pull in both Facebook and Google in onto their cap table as investors. And Silicon Valley knows India very well. Many of the CEOs of Silicon Valley companies, including Google, uh, Microsoft, and there's one other one, uh, are actually Indian nationals or Indian Americans who've been educated in India. Uh, And they employ enormous tech teams uh, in Bangalore, leveraging the incredible coding resources of India. But beyond that, it is widely viewed by both Chinese technology companies and American technology companies as a kind of must-win market. Meanwhile, Facing that, you have a government which is quite determined to retain digital sovereignty and takes this far more seriously than, for example, the Australian government. You also have a domestic financial system which has done well in tech and is therefore quicker to allocate capital to a technology startup as opposed to a mining startup or a real estate startup. So... uh, India is kind of ground zero for the digital decolonization story. Silicon Valley really cares and Mumbai and Delhi and Bangalore are really pushing back. I'm told there are 30 unicorns waiting to list from India right now. I don't know if it's 20 or 40, but there's plenty. I've got PowerPoints on five or six of them already. uh, And they're coming out as soon as this year Uh, and they're super impressive companies logistics health tech edutech fintech of course e-commerce and there will be many many others bangalore is an amazing place to visit you just i would never imagine that this is india now it's it feels more like san francisco of course The countryside in India includes some incredibly poor people, incredibly poor villages. There's a literacy problem. You know, there's a lot of challenges uh, for India in total. But Indian tech specifically is leveraging this coding base, which is the largest and most profitable in the world, and a growing economy, a financial system which is pretty deep and sophisticated, a great entrepreneurial tradition, 
And uh, so it's a great story, longer term. Short term with COVID, I think you want to stick with the stronger companies uh, because foreign investors won't be able to travel there. So David, you mentioned you, uh, you mentioned uh, Reliance Geo, and uh, Geo is likely to be split out in, uh, I think it's, is it next year or the year after that they're talking about uh, splitting out? Depends on market conditions, but they are guiding either 21, 22 or 23. And meanwhile, you can buy Reliance Industries, which I own and which I think is kind of cheap to Geo. Uh, then there's a company called InfoEdge, which is listed in Mumbai and is a kind of technology incubator, which I like. Uh, then there are all these unicorns which are going to come out later. Uh, and I, I think it's all pretty interesting. There are the traditional systems integrator IT outsourcing companies, Tata Computer Services, Infosys, etc. And they're probably a little more stable and less leveraged businesses than Geo Platforms and InfoEdge. One other Indian uh, company that is of particular interest is Flipkart. For people who are unfamiliar, Flipkart is an Indian e-commerce business that uh, Walmart purchased uh, a couple of years ago now. Um, and Flipkart is in a big battle with Amazon for, uh, I guess, e-commerce supremacy in India. How, how do you see that uh, battle playing out? Is this an example of digital decolonization in action? The digital decolonization example would be reliance against both Amazon and Flipkart because Flipkart's part of Walmart. It's an American company. Now, the way that it wound up being consolidated into Walmart is interesting, and it resulted in Walmart becoming more Indian. Uh, so their Flipkart director is serving on the, the tech strategy of Walmart, which is very successful, is pretty much leveraging things that Flipkart had already figured out. But Amazon is trying very hard to compete in India, and I am personally not sure it's going to work. There's a story before COVID, Jeff Bezos flew to India dressed up in a Nehru jacket and asked for a meeting with Modi, and Modi refused to meet him. And he was already the richest man in the world at that point. Uh, Amazon has promised to spend $5 billion competing in India, and I don't doubt that they will go ahead and spend $5 billion competing in India. And that is more capital than all of Southeast Asia, you know, which is a larger economy. But between Flipkart, Walmart, Amazon, Reliance, my guess is Reliance wins. There's something that happens when a tech startup has the support of a cash flow positive business. And we saw this in C-Limited. C-Limited, you know, makes a billion dollars a quarter from their gaming business, and they were able to invest that aggressively into their e-commerce business. Well, Reliance makes lots of money in the world's largest refinery, and they also have 350 million customers in their cell phone business. So it's a powerful, powerful competitor. So before we move on to what this all means for retail investors, David, we will take a very short break to hear from sponsors. So David, let's have a discussion around the retail investor because there's no doubt that emerging markets and everything that we've just spent uh, half an hour speaking about is incredibly exciting and 
a clear opportunity. But um, when it comes to researching these sorts of uh, economies and, and companies, we imagine that sort of boots on the ground is in, incredibly important, as you've indicated by going to what 100 countries in the last 10 years. So obviously, that is difficult for the retail investor. What are some of the best ways retail investors can learn about emerging markets or perhaps research um, without having to take their frequent flyers and <laughs> head all around the world? Well, I could talk a great length about this, but I got some early quick answers to that. There is a pretty decent English language newspaper on the internet from almost every country in the world. So let's take Tanzania. It may not be a core position in your investment portfolio, but there's an English language newspaper in Tanzania and you can go there and read that without leaving your flat. Then the phone still work, notwithstanding COVID, and it's hard to get these characters on the phone, but you can generally, if after a few tries, you can get the IR person on the phone. All the companies now have websites. You can get their financial statements on the phone. So it's hard, but it's not that hard. Now, I still, I love face-to-face meetings. I love kicking tires. I love talking to the taxi driver and hearing what a crook the company is. There's a lot of value to me in the travel. And so I expect I'll continue to do travel once travel is a thing again. But if one of your listeners is really interested in Tanzania, uh, (laughs) you know, there's a lot you can do without even leaving your home. Now, that said, most of the countries that I look at and most countries in the MSCI Merchant Markets Index and almost all the countries in the MSCI Frontier Index aren't all that exciting because the economies aren't growing that fast but, and the populations aren't that big. But India and Indonesia specifically have huge middle classes, growing economies, significant critical mass already, and back to Bryce's earlier comment, network effects. So I think these are two places that are really worth a look. But that said, there's opportunity in South America, there's opportunity in emerging Europe, there's even some opportunity in Africa. Hmm. So David, uh, for a lot of investors, you know, when they get emerging market exposure through market cap weighted indexes, um, for, for many of the reasons we've touched on today, emerging markets are harder, there's less analyst coverage, there's less information. Well, the information's harder to get in many ways. And so they just default to, they find a market cap weighted index and that's their emerging markets exposure. How do you think about uh, market cap weighted indexes as a way to uh, access emerging markets? So the MSCI Emerging Markets, FTSE Emerging Markets Indices are heavily weighted to Alibaba, Tencent, Samsung, Taiwan Semiconductor, Pinduoduo, Meituan, and a couple of other companies. Uh, And these are interesting companies. They're pretty impressive and all that, and they've done okay. But I think there's value in digging a bit further. And you won't get exposure to nickel mines or Bank Jago, or you'll get maybe a one percent position in Reliance, nothing in InfoEdge, etc. If you go with these passive products, yeah, I think that's uh, that's that's a good point. Pays to do your research because there's some very exciting companies out there. David, look, we we could speak to you for for hours more about this, and hopefully, we'll get the chance to do it again. But, you know, we, we have reached uh, the end of our time. We do like to end with a quick fire uh, final three questions. 
But before we do, we want to firstly say a massive thank you for joining us today. Um, we've got a lot from this conversation. If people want to learn more about you or follow you online, is there anywhere in particular they should be going? Uh, www.princefund.com and then you know Google search digital decolonization. Nice one. Nice. Now, David, we will get to these final three questions. Uh, the first one is, do you have any books that you consider must-reads? Uh, so, you know, Graham and Dodd is still like, a thing value is kind of out of favor, but I think people ought to know that story. Uh, there's a historian named Sinclair who wrote a great book called the land that never was about an emerging markets investment in the 19th century from a fictional country that did very well, particularly in the secondary market. And then I just like reading history in general. And it certainly helped me a lot in understanding the countries that I invest in. Yeah. Nice. Second question, in 60 seconds or less, what's the best company you've ever come across? I think Gojek is the most impressive company that I've ever come across. That They built that with essentially, you know, scotch tape and staples. $10 billion company in the middle of the world's most crowded 40 million person city. Uh, with remarkably little capital, uh, that was the most impressive thing I've ever seen. Gojek today has 185 million downloads and gives steady employment to 2 million people. Wow. Yeah, very impressive company. And they've just launched an ESG initiative, which is really exciting as well. Now, David, final question. If you think back to your, you know, your early days when you were making that first investment in IBM, uh, what advice would you have for your younger self? Buy more Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. <laughs> Whatever I could have done. Yeah, this has been better. But, I mean, one very important thing is don't trade too much. I mean, don't worry if a company bounces around a bit. Do your work so that you know that it's a good company. And if it's a good company, yeah, at the end of the day, technologies change, you know, there are companies that aren't going to be as good 10 years from now as they are today. But if I think how many times I sold, I mean, I sold Amazon, you know, at about 5% of the current share price. I made good money. I felt great. You know, boy, this has been terrific. I made five times my money. You know, but the, the long cycle is so powerful. And, and I, I definitely struggled when I was younger with just not having the patience to ride out some of these things. There are relatively few companies that build value over the long term. If you found one, think long and hard about selling it. Mm. Mm. Great advice to finish there, David. We very much appreciate you coming on and, and uh, sharing some pretty fascinating insight into what's going on in Asia and emerging markets, certainly an opportunity for, for us all to think uh, quite deeply about because, you know, it's not something we get a lot of information about quite easily, but yeah, it seems like a, a massive opportunity. So thank you very much. And specifically for investors in Australia, next time you go to Bali, bring your investment portfolio. <laughs> nice. I like it. I like it. Make it a working holiday. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Thank thanks, you. Thanks, David. Nice one. Thanks, David. Equity Mates, we hope you enjoyed this interview with David Halpert of Prince Street Capital. 
Please be aware that Prince Street Capital or David Halpert may have positions in the following securities or companies. Nickel AU, Bank Jargo, Reliance, Mercado Libre and Gojek. Equitymates Investing Podcast is a product of Equitymates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.